Good morning, Four Corners Church. I'm so glad to come to you via the internet, into your home, onto your phone. It's the second week of our online church gathering. Welcome. If you have your Bible or your phone or your computer, you can open it up to 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 7. And we're going to park ourselves in an Old Testament story, but we're going to hear a very relevant and modern application. Calling today, In a Crisis with Christ. In a Crisis with Christ. Now, it's rare in our modern age when we have a chance to kind of feel what the ancient world felt. And while in some sense people don't change, and people in the Bible times had some of the same thoughts and fears and hopes and dreams that we have, our modern time is so different when it comes to all the conveniences that we've had. Um, We get to go down the street typically and get some food. They literally grew their food and made daily bread very different than us. Uh, We turn on a faucet and get fresh water. They carried buckets to a well, pulled up the water, carried it back, sometimes for miles. Very different. Now, our Old Testament story today in 2 Kings chapter 7 is going to give us a chance to at least begin to think about what it must have been like back then. And in light of where we are today, we're going to be able to see that some of the hopes, fears, dreams, ambitions, the things that motivate us at the deepest level, really aren't all that different, even though thousands of years have passed between this story and now. So let me set you up with just a little bit of history as we begin to talk about being with Christ in a crisis. So years before 2 Kings chapter 7, the nation of Israel had actually had a civil war. They had split in half. The 10 northern tribes, making up the bulk of the geography and the square miles, they retained the name Israel. And the two southern tribes, much smaller section of real estate, were called Judah. And in the area of Judah, the capital was Jerusalem. And in the area of Israel, the capital was Samaria. And our Bible tells the story of both parts of what was once unified Israel in our Old Testament. Our story is about the northern part. Samaria had been under siege. And siege warfare in the Old Testament is a really, really interesting study. In in fact, some of you will remember from college the stories of Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey. And there's references to, for instance, the siege on the city of Troy, which lasted 20 years. Now, siege warfare was really a warfare of attrition. What would happen is a invading army would come to a city and its walls and they would surround the walls with people and armaments and the hope was is we'll freeze them out. We'll lock down their supply lines. Um, We will cut off their communication to the outside world. We'll affect their food supply and their water supply. And when they're tired, they'll give up. And rather than wasting all of our soldiers, we'll make them come to us begging for us to give them relief. That was the idea behind siege warfare. And that's exactly what has been happening to the capital city of the northern state of Israel. It's been going on for quite some time. And in fact, if you read the chapters leading up to 2 Kings chapter 7, it's a really ugly story of just how brutal it got. People are hungry. There's panic. All of the situations in life have been radically upended. And people are scared. 
But this particular story doesn't so much focus upon what's going on in the city. It begins to focus what's happening on just the outskirts of the city, just beyond the city wall. There are four lepers. Now, in the Bible, leprosy, that word, can refer to a whole host of different skin diseases. And that culture, if you had skin diseases, it was considered to be communicable, and so you were considered unclean no matter what was going on, any spot of any variety, unclean. So these four lepers are unclean, and they find themselves unable to interact with the rest of the people in the city. And their only real option is to sit outside the city walls, right near where people throw their garbage over the wall. And that's where they've been for months, perhaps years. But now the city's under siege, and actually there are no more scraps to be thrown over the wall. So these four lepers are in a really difficult situation. They are situated between two armies. They can't go in the city. If they stay where they are, it's going to be impending death for them. And the prospects of moving forward are scary as well because in front of them in every direction is the enemy army. It's a really, really ugly time in Israel's history. Now, it doesn't take a scholar, biblically, or an incredibly intuitive person to begin to see a handful of parallels. Certainly, the Bible story is much more extreme than what's going on with us. And in fact, the point today is not even to draw all the comparisons out. I want to focus on these four lepers and how they thought about what was going on, how they responded to what was going on, how they felt emotionally while they were doing life in a precarious situation, uncertain about how it was going to work out, and really all the normal conveniences of their already put out life being stripped away from them. 2 Kings chapter 7, beginning with verse 3, here's what our Bible says. Now, there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say, we'll go into the city, well, the famine is there and we will die. And if we stay here, outside the gate where they're throwing the scraps over the wall, but there are no more scraps now, we'll die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans. Now, depending on your Bible version, it might say Syrians. It's the same group of people. They were vicious, marauders, horrible, horrible people in our Old Testament story. They're always bringing pain to the people around them. So these lepers say again, so let's go over to the camp of our enemy, the Arameans or the Syrians, and we'll surrender. And if they spare us, we'll live. And if they kill us, then we die. But candidly, they're thinking they're going to die anyway. Now, verse number five. At dusk, your Bible might say twilight. They got up and they went to the camp of the Arameans. And when they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. Now, this is where the story gets interesting. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and the Egyptian kings to attack us. So Israel has somehow snuck out, conspired with our common 
um, enemies, and now they've formed an alliance. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, and we're in trouble, is what the Arameans are thinking. So verse 7, they got up at this sound that the Lord brought miraculously to their camp. They got up, and they fled in the dusk, or twilight, and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys. They left the camp as it was, and they ran for their lives. So the miracle here is not that God brings an army. He brings the sound of an army, and he drives the Arameans out. Now, at this moment in our story, the people in the capital city of Israel have no idea what's happened. Only the four lepers have any idea that the enemy's campments outside the city are vacant. It's twilight which means probably the fires of their, uh, right outside their temp- tents are still smoldering. It's hard to see exactly what's going on, but it becomes very apparent that the tents are empty. So the Bible then says, in verse 8, the men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, and they entered one of the tents, and look at what they did. These hungry lepers, they ate and they drank, Then they took silver and gold and clothes, and one version says expensive raiment. And they went off and they hid them. They buried them, planning to go back and get them later. Then they returned and they entered another tent, and they took some things from it and hid them also. The things they were taking were the loot that the Arameans had gained from ransacking a thousand other cities. It must have been gold and silver and precious jewels rubies and diamonds and the like. But in verse 9, the lepers say to each other, then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let us go at once and report this to the royal palace. Now, in the rest of the chapter, that's exactly what they do. They go to the keeper of the gate, and they begin to yell at the keeper of the gate, hey, the Arameans have scattered. The Lord has routed them ahead of us. Their tents are open for plunder. Come and take. There's more than anybody would ever want. We have an abundance available to us. Now, this is a fascinating story to me, not only because of the somewhat loose connections between what was happening in this Old Testament story and some of the emotions and perhaps some, to a minor degree, details of what's been going on culture-wide with us. We're nowhere near starving, although some fear perhaps has made people feel like they will. While it's never wrong to be prepared and to have a bit of preparation set back for the family, for children of God being driven by fear, that always is going to take as to a dark place. But I guess in a worst-case scenario, this is representative of where we think it could go. But I want to encourage you today as a disciple of the Lord because when you go through a crisis but you're with Christ, it makes all the difference. And today, we're going to unpack for the next few minutes just a couple of differences that may not sound that profound by the words I'm going to use, but if you'll pause, I want to challenge you to think deeply and slowly 
about how profound going through a crisis with Christ really is. How much better, how qualitatively different it is to go through a crisis alone versus a crisis with Christ. Now, earlier I said that the siege warfare of the Old Testament was brutal and terrifying. The idea was to starve people out of the city. So the people in the city, when they saw the armies gathering around, they stockpiled food, they dug wells, and they hid them. They hid them so that people couldn't get into the water supply. They hid them so that their preparations would be able to take care of them. And perhaps the hope was is that this invading army would get tired. Maybe they'd have problems back home. And if we can just hold up here for a while, then they're going to get tired and leave. And so who's going to give up first? The Aramean general, the Bible tells us in a few chapters earlier, was a man by the name of Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad. And he was ruthless and powerful. So I want you to imagine the scene of these lepers sitting outside the walls and they're having a conversation. What are we going to do? We can't stay here. There's no use going backwards into the city. And so they're just logically trying to make sense of their real options. There's no spiritual impact specifically about what I'm about to say. It's just the reality of their situation. But it might be insightful spiritually for you. They reasoned it this way. We can't go back. We can't stay here. So our only real option, even though we don't know if it's going to work, is to move forward. That's the only possible chance we have. I I, I want to talk with you about the necessity to move forward and how important it is to move forward, especially when life has been suddenly turned upside down. How important it is to move forward, especially when, as a disciple, what you thought was going to happen didn't happen, and some of your fears you thought might never come actually comes. I'm not asking you as a disciple to simply have a logical conversation and arrive at the same place I'm trying to take you as the lepers may have had outside the walls. It just makes sense to us that we can't stay here and we can't go back. There's no food in the city. There's no food coming over the wall in the form of scraps of people's garbage that we can dig through so we can only move forward. I'm not asking you to arrive at this logically. I'm asking you as a disciple for a few minutes to think about the fact that no matter what crisis you're going through with Christ... You're actually going through it. With Christ, the whole point is is that you can move forward through the stuff of life. In the 23rd Psalm that we often quote at times of crisis and loss, David writes these words in the old King James style of the Bible. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I don't know which is the more important part of that verse. I'll fear no evil, or as I walk through the valley. I want to be completely clear with you. When you're with Christ in a crisis, he'll take you through. Now, there are some things that you can do. There are some things you can think about. 
There are some actions you can take. In fact, there's a way to follow God through that makes the journey not necessarily painless, but certainly less painful. It doesn't necessarily rush you through the lesson or through the valley, but as you're going through it, you get the sense that there's purpose and meaning and even sometimes beauty that can be found in even the most dark situations. When you're with Christ and you're a disciple and you're going through the valley, you can arrive to a place of peace knowing that while you don't know what's ahead, maybe the shadow has blocked the light on the path, you do know who's actually leading you. And so that when you follow him, you're actually safe because he's committed to taking you through. I'm going to give you four simple statements that I want you to think about with me. Here's the first one. When I'm with Christ in a crisis, me can be replaced by we. And when I think about these four lepers, my my first impression is, is that there are four of them. They get to be together processing a really undesirable situation. Now, it could, I suppose, be just as meaningful if it was one person. But when I read that there are four, I think about, well, I I think about another story in the Bible where there are four people. I think about the three Hebrew children who are thrown into the fire, but when the king looks at them, believing that these three Hebrew children are going to be burned up, he actually sees four people in the fire, and he says these words, the fourth person looks like the Son of God. I just want to make the point that when Christ is with you in a crisis, you're actually not alone. And as believers in Jesus, when you go through a crisis, you not only just have the Holy Spirit, God incarnate with you, what you have really, in addition to that, is you have the body of Christ. And some of you are fortunate enough to have family. But even if you don't have biological family or your family is so dysfunctional, You have a group of people around you. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the body of Christ. And the power of we begins to replace the loneliness of me. Now, right now, we're having a culture-wide conversation about what's really important and what are we going to do and what's next. And we're coming to some pretty clear conclusions None of us was really fully in control. Now, the Bible has tried to teach us that all along, that we can't be. So what we do is we trust the one who knows the end from the beginning. We don't clamor for control. We don't use people to bring stability into our lives. We don't hold on to something temporary like money, thinking that somehow it is the thing that's going to get us through. No, the one thing that lasts is Christ. We were never never fully in control, ever. And we're talking about that as a culture. We're talking as a culture right now about the fact that life, not to be morbid, is fragile. It always was. But as long as we had our comforts and our routines, as long as we felt like we had what was necessary to survive, we thought, we acted at least, that we were somewhat invincible. But right now, 
the Lord is elevating the reality of the situation to all of us. That life was always fragile. It was always precious. And it's all been held in the hand of God. So when you're with Christ, who's in charge and never surprised and never caught off guard, and when you're with the body of Christ, you get to have conversations about what really matters. You get to discover the power of we talking about what's really important right now. Discovering, for instance, with your spouse, if you're married and you're a disciple, what is our family uniquely going to be like after this is over? What have we learned together? And you don't have to do that alone. You get to do that with the counsel of the Holy Spirit. You get to do that with the wisdom of the Word of God. And you get to do that with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's why, as a church, we've begun to pull out the stops to leverage tools and resources we already had to keep communication and community open. Small groups connecting on their phones or on uh, different platforms uh, through the internet. Some people are just utilizing tools they've already had. Some are discovering new ways to do this. Why? Why? Because there is deep power when you're with Christ, and when you're with the body of Christ. We trumps me. And by the way, this is the way it's always supposed to have been with Christ. When you're a Christian, there are no lone rangers. I'm not even talking about whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. You have a family around you. And I believe you're going to have an opportunity to discover just how powerful the family of God really is. I think the enemy had just about convinced us, as an American culture at least, that church was really about programs and buildings and what we offer. I, I think he had almost lulled many of us into a consumeristic mentality, but no more, because we're having a conversation about the power of what really is going on, and that is the body of Christ, not one of us, but all of us. And I'm actually quite excited to discover that with you. And let me give you another profound difference that can happen when you have Christ with you in a crisis. Number two, with Christ in a crisis, complexity can give way to simplicity. Now, it may be too soon to say our path forward on the deepest level is very simple. But I bet you in a few days, all the different stirrings of your mind and your heart, and all the different news stories, I bet you there's going to begin to be some convergence. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to hear it more and more from those that are tuned into the Spirit. We are going to land on really what we should be talking about. Now listen to me. My next few words are not meant to be judgmental at all. But what the church should have always been talking about was the fragile nature of life. We should have always been talking about that after this life, there is an eternity to be gained. There's a heaven to be won and a hell to be avoided. That is not opportunism. That is not fear-mongering. That has always been the most important conversation somebody could have in this life. And it's amazing now, standing where we stand today, how simple it is to see that. And if you're not there yet, I pray the Lord will get you there. Because every one of us, those that follow Jesus and those that don't, have a unique time in history that I've never quite yet experienced. We've inched towards it. This is radically different. We get to discover 
What do we really think the point of this life is? And we are bombarded with answers to that question. Most of them are attached to money. Buy my product and discover the real meaning in life. Buy my product and discover great satisfaction. But the truth is that right now the simple picture is that those things do not satisfy. Many of the things we thought we needed, we actually don't need. We had confused our wants with our needs, but the picture is getting more simple. That's the power of walking with Christ in a crisis. The complex can actually get more simple. So let's just talk simple for a second. If you're a married disciple today, at the top of what was important always, even if you've been able to put it off, was that you be a great disciple who is also a husband. Or you be a great disciple who is also a wife. Or you be a great disciple who is also a parent. And really, honestly, was there ever anything really more important than that? Even though other things distracted us, do you see how the crisis with Christ brings simplicity to what really matters? And the power of relationships and the role they're supposed to play in our life God's actually, I know it may sound too soon to say this, but he's actually giving us a pretty profound gift. He's letting us bust through the complexity of the culture's conversations and discover a simplicity of his values and life with him. We get to do this crisis with Christ. Let me give you two more. With Christ, the desperate can make discoveries. I mean, think about these lepers. They were desperate, nowhere to go. And so the simple reality for them was, we're going to move forward. And when they did, they were uncertain. They didn't know what it was going to look like. They didn't know if they came over the hill and began to see the tents, if they would be met with a hostile army or not. But in their desperation, they moved forward. And when you move forward with Christ in a crisis, even when you're desperate, there are discoveries for you to make. Their desperation brought them face-to-face with the blessing and the provision of God. I believe yours can do the same. And maybe you're not desperate, desperate. That's okay. It is a great time for you and for me to ask God a simple question. God, what are you teaching me? What do you want me to discover? And as the tensions mount, if they do for you, if people around you begin to experience extreme discomfort, if it comes closer and closer to your home, to your address, as you're managing what's in front of you the best you can, ask the Lord, God, what? What are you trying to show me? And I'm telling you, he loves to answer that prayer. He loves to. He loves to come alongside his children And say to them, not only am I with you, not only am I doing things on your behalf, not only am I taking you through on a journey, but I'm going to make this journey count. Not one pain of your life will be wasted. All of it will be used in the good purposes of God to develop you, to develop me. The the desperate with Christ can make profound discoveries about life, about their purpose. I bet you, some of you, when this is over, need to think about what you're giving your life to. And for some, it will be minor alterations. For some, I bet you, the right move for you will be cataclysmic, earth-shattering change as you discover 
that maybe you lean the ladder of your success against the wrong wall. What a powerful discovery. Grab hold of what God has for you while you still have time. Number four, when we're with Christ in a crisis, bad news can actually become good news. Now, this is not sleight of hand, and this is not me pretending that there isn't genuinely bad news out there. There is. But God has this remarkable way of redeeming even the ugly and making it beautiful, taking the dark to demonstrate how powerful the light is. When you're with Christ, really bad news often gets turned, sometimes in a moment, sometimes over time, to profoundly good news. This is why the gospel, which literally means good news, starts with very bad news. You and I are lost without God. We're spiritually dead. We're sinners. That's how the gospel begins. It doesn't sound bright. But the power of the gospel, the power of God is is that that bad beginning gets radically shifted because of the grace of God. And the worst news, that there's nothing you and I can do to save ourselves, becomes the greatest news of all time. That because of that, Christ came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. It's pretty potent. Some of you, like me, have been through a handful of things that were difficult. And looking back, you were able to see some good that came out of it. I'm telling you, that is the profound and consistent work of your heavenly father. He loves to take bad news and make it good news. And look what happened with the lepers. They're terrified, and they go into these tents, and there's no one there. And the first thing they do, these hungry lepers, pretty sure they're going to die no matter what they do. And in desperation, they move forward. And when they do, they get to eat. Did you notice that? The first thing they do. That's not a spiritual lesson here. They were hungry. But did you know that the Bible consistently says to us in the Old Testament and even in the New that one of the metaphors God has for us about coming to him is is that he prepares a table before us. In the Old Testament, he does it in the presence of our enemies. That's kind of happening here. In the New Testament, the parable is, is there's a wedding feast and we're about to eat and there's nobody here. So go out into the highways and into the hedges and compel people to come in because the Father has prepared an incredible feast for all to eat. And in a time when um, we're talking an awful lot about food and what's available and what's on the shelf, don't lose this metaphor. Every time you talk about food, I need you to think about, my brothers and sisters, that God has prepared a table for you. It's a table of plenty. And you and I get to come and dine, and it doesn't cost us a penny. The bad news all around us turns into good news, but not just in that way because of what we get. Did you hear what the, what the lepers begin to talk about? Hey, let's go to another tent. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. Hey, we're full. Maybe they stopped at the mess tent first. We're full. Then they go to the next tent, and now it's gold and jewels and fine raiment and clothes. And they go out and bury that, man. That's our stuff. Then they go to another tent. Let's get that stuff. But somewhere along the way, they come to a realization that I hope hits you. I hope it hits our church profoundly. They say these phrases hey, if we're still doing this all night long, just taking what we need, depending on the version you're reading, some mischief is going to befall us. Something 
bad is going to happen to us. In other words, this can't just be about me and mine and us and us four and no more. It has got to be good news, not just for me, but for everybody else. So they stop their personal plunder and they go back, not even sure. They're lepers. Are they going to be allowed in? Is anybody even going to listen to them? But with clear language and with incredible joy and now personally filled bellies, they go back to the city gates, the ones they used to have to sit outside of, and they start telling people, they're gone. The tents are empty. The armaments are laying on the ground. There's no one there. There's enough food and meat and wine and clothes and gold for everybody. There's no limit to the supply here. Leave the city and come with us and take what the Lord has for us. Now, is there any finer picture than exactly what happened to you and me? I submit to you. We were lepers outside the city gate begging for scraps of bread. And we didn't even know how bad it was. And at some point in desperation, we thought, we can't stay here. We can't go back. Maybe if I go hands up, white flag raised to the enemy, maybe he'll have pity on me. That's the story of everybody that ever came to Christ. You were unclean. I was unclean. We were without hope. And in desperation, we went towards our heavenly father. When we were in our sin, he was our enemy. But in desperation, we thought, well, maybe our enemy will have pity. And he did. Thank God he did. But that's not all of the good news. He called every leper who has been made white as snow. He called every person who was hungry but was fed by the spiritual food that he offers us through Christ. He calls every one of us who were able to stock full the treasure of our personal soul to not hoard it and hold it and keep gathering for us. He called every one of us to go and share the good news. I I believe, I, I believe the best days of the church, the Lord's big C capital church are ahead of us. I believe without a doubt that you're going to see God do profound things. I wanna challenge you to walk through this crisis and all the other crises that might come our way. Not alone, do it with Christ and others. I wanna challenge you to get past all the myriad of things that wanna compete for your attention and get back to the simple truth. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Stake your claim with Christ and then start that journey of full discovery with him. Let your desperation drive you all the way there. I wanna encourage you that when bad news is circling around you, God has a remarkable way of rewriting the story and bringing good news that will not just be for you, but it will literally be for all people, certainly the people within your circle of influence. I believe the best days of our church and the Lord's church are ahead of us. And I think God is rousing a slumbering church. And we're trading off the lie that it was about buildings and programs and gatherings and the total we could have and the mass energy and the social presence. Those things are good in their place. 
but it really is about whether the Spirit of God is drawing people, whether the gospel is being responded to, and whether disciples are growing or not. It was always about the church being going into the world to make disciples. Man, when this whole social distancing is over, I believe the church will be more prepared than ever to go into the world and get about their father's business. How about you? How about you? Don't just make it about you. And don't just make it about your four and no more. This is good news for the world. And listen to me, disciple. He's called you to share it. Lay some of it down, run towards other people and declare, God has a table of plenty spread for you. Let me show you where the food is. I'm going to pray for us right now. And then we're going to do some worship. Then I'm going to come back and we're actually going to take some steps together. And I'm going to talk to you about some things our church is doing in just a few moments. But right now, I want you to pray with me. So if you can, would you close your eyes? Maybe put your hands out like this if you're comfortable. It's okay if you're not. And let's talk to our Heavenly Father. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that even when we're in a crisis, when we're with you, it changes everything. God, I, I pray for your church today. I pray you would make us one. I pray you would return us back to the simple truth of the gospel. God, I pray that you would help us to shed off any consumeristic tendencies we've had about our faith. And we would get about our Father's business with deep joy, with simple clarity. Father, I pray that you will rise up your church, that you would make us literally a shining city upon a hill, drawing all from the darkness, that you would use us powerfully, God. And Lord, I, I want to take a moment and pray for Four Corners Church. There are people who are hurting. Father, I pray that your spirit would go right now and touch their hearts, that you would calm their fears, that your truth would speak louder than any lie, that you would convince us that if we are with Christ, we're actually going to be okay. That even if, God forbid, we have to agree with the Apostle Paul that for me to live is Christ, but to die is actually gain. So, Lord, thank you for calling us back. I lift up every man and woman right now who's returning back to you. They've been drifting. They've been disciples, but they haven't been faithful. God, they've been distracted by every other thing, and you've known it, but God, I believe you'll use this situation to call them back. Lord, help them to return back to the cross. Jesus, one more time, forgive me. I need to be your disciple. Use me powerfully. Change me, grow me. And Father, I pray for the men and women for the very first time who are acknowledging that you have a table spread in front of them, and they are the leper with no hope, they're desperate, they can't save themselves. But you have done the work on your cross and in your resurrection. Help them to declare, Jesus, I'm a sinner, save me. I trust the work you did on my behalf. Be the Lord of my life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. I want to take a moment right now and turn your attention to our electronic connect card. In your email, you can use the address nextsteps at fourcornerschurch.com to indicate a few things that you can do to move forward in your faith. I'm going to give you five options. And very simply, all you would do is simply in your email, 
Put the letter A if you want to do A, B for B, and so on. So let me walk you through those five options right now. If you prayed earlier with me to receive Christ, I'd like for you to simply take next step A. It says, today, I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. And I'd like to send you some information about what it is to be a child of God. A member of our team will be in contact with you. We won't harass you or hound you. Just send us an email. Make sure your contact information is there. If all you give us is your email, that's how we'll communicate. If you want a phone call, give us that information as well. But we'd like to celebrate with you that you came and received what the Lord offered through the gift of Jesus Christ. Or perhaps it's next step B. Now, because I don't know if we're going to be meeting, we're moving our next baptism to May 17th. That's an important date. You're going to want to go ahead and get that down. But for right now, if you want to be baptized, our next baptism is May 17th right here in this building. It's a party around here. And we want to celebrate with you that you have come back to life with Christ, that you have been dead, made dead to your sins and raised to new life with Christ. So just simply email us next step at four corner, next steps at fourcornerschurch.com and um, write the letter B, type the letter B, and we'll communicate with you about what baptism is, answer your questions, and get you started. Perhaps next step C is a prayer that you need to pray. Here's what it says. It says, I'm praying, pray that God would help me move forward with his agenda for my life and that I would grow as a disciple. If you simply send us the letter C, we'll send you a few words that helps you pray about that. We'll join with you. I sincerely believe, disciples, that God wants you to grow in this time. We are not simply waiting for rescue. God is going to move us forward, and we want to pray with you about that. The next step, D, if you have returned to the Lord, maybe as we were talking, as I prayed, and you're doubling down on a commitment that maybe had grown cold, would you just type the letter D in an email and send it to nextsteps at fourcornerschurch.com? We want to encourage you in your faith. It is totally appropriate, it is totally appropriate to come to God in desperation and when fear mounts. In in fact, I don't know how you come to God without desperation. Everybody that has ever come to God came knowing that they could not save themselves. So it's very appropriate to respond this way. And if that's you, we just want to encourage you and give you some tools. Or finally, next step, E. Um, This is the power of this place, and I know it's true in a lot of other churches as well. We love to help one another. I'm going to tell you about one of those options in just a moment, but right now, next step E says, I want to help some, and so send me some ways that I can serve during this time. If you put E in an email to nextsteps at fourcornerschurch.com, we'll communicate with you. Now, if we were in our building together, this is when we would take up our offering and we'd all put our connect cards into the offering bucket along with our gifts to support the ministry of this church. I'm going to have to back up and go to now and you're going to have to splice that. I'm sorry. Okay. I just lost my voice there for a second. All right. I'll do a three, two, one again. All right. Three, two, one. Now, at this time, if we were all together in our building, we would collect our offerings, we'd put our connect cards and our gifts to forward the ministry of this church in the buckets, we'd pray, and then we'd move on to some worship. I want to tell you about some practical ways that you can continue to support the ministry of this church and a very special way that you can do it. So even now, if you want, you can begin to give by going online to fourcornerschurch.com, www.thenumberfourcornerschurch.com, backslash give, or just hit the give tab, and you can begin to give an offering. 
you are probably smart enough to know that if we're not meeting together, it's having a profound impact on our offerings. And so if you call this church home and you would normally give live in the service, would you consider giving online at fourcornerschurch.com backslash give or perhaps text to give? The number is on the screen for you. It's 513-806-2724. What you do is you simply type that number in the top of your texting app. And then in the body of your text, you would just simply put a number, 10, 20, 100. And that's the amount you want to give. And then when you hit send, you get back a series of instructions how to complete your very secure text to give gift. And so if you give those ways without dedicating, it will go to further the budget of this place. And that's very, very important at this time. If we go four, five, six, eight weeks uh, without meeting, it's going to have a profound impact. And we can mitigate that by upping our giving or by giving new money that you wouldn't ordinarily give. And we'd certainly appreciate it if you do that. But I want to tell you about a very special offering. Now, many of you who are volunteers and members and regular attendants around here, you've already gotten this in your inbox this week. If you haven't seen it, it might be in your junk folder. Or if you didn't get it at all, just email me at nextsteps@fourcornerschurch.com and say, send me the information about, here it is, the Stand in the Gap offering. So every year at Christmas, we raise an offering, and we were talking about the various ways that we were going to use that money. All of that has been scrapped. Now our Easter offering is called Stand in the Gap, and we are going to collect as much money as you guys feel like you can reasonably give, and we're going to use it to uniquely help people whose salaries and income has been impacted negatively by what's going on in our culture. In fact, we're going to use it to still do here, near, and far. 20% of the Stand in the Gap offering will go to our strategic partners. 10% will go here in North Cincinnati at the Healing Center and at the New Life Mission to help our strategic partners who are feeding people and giving them a hand up at this time. 10% will go around the world to 4C India and our work in Cuba where right now in Kerala, India, where our orphanage is, is a hotbed of COVID-19 activity. But 80% of every dollar given for the Stand in the Gap offering is going to go to help give cash offerings and gifts to people in our church body and their families who have been negatively impacted as they were cut off, layoffs, and shutdowns. If you want to help with that above and beyond your normal giving and you call this church home, all you have to do is go online to fourcornerschurch.com backslash give or fourcornerschurch.com, hit the give tab. And if you go to the online giving section, one of the drop-down options is stand in the gap. Every penny you get there, uh, you give there, every penny will go to this initiative. 20 cents of every dollar will go to our partners. 80 cents of every dollar will go to people in our church. And if you give to that, or if you ask a question about it, I'll send you the mechanical way we're doing it. So if you have a need and you call this church home, you're a faithful attender, you're a member, you're a volunteer, we're going to help you. And we're going to rally together to make sure that at least the edge of the pain has been medicated by your brothers and sisters in this place. I have a lot more to say about that. We'll do that via email. There's a lot of details for you. I want to say to you, Four Corners Church, how grateful I am that you are the kind of church that always rises to the occasion. And I know you will. I know that you will give out of your need, you will give out of your abundance, you will give out of obedience, and you will give because you believe and love the people of this place. You believe in them. So just thank you for that. 
I'm gonna lead us in a prayer one more time about our next steps and our offering. If you have any questions, next steps at fourcornerschurch.com. We'll answer them as quickly as we can. Pray with me right now. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that you are profoundly at work among us. God, I wanna thank you for generous and faithful people. God, I wanna boldly ask you to just meet the budgetary needs around here. Cause people to step up. Cause there to be an overwhelming sense of ownership of the ministry of this place. So that even when we're not meeting here, people will give in unusual ways for them. Those that don't use online or text will use it so that our budget isn't hampered. But Father, also, would you bless our congregation as we stand in the gap with our brothers and sisters who call this church home and we help them in a time of need. So Father, we give it to you, every step, every penny, use it for your glory. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray, amen and amen.